Once, in the ancient days of the world-honored one, Manjushri went to the place where Buddhas were assembled and found that all Buddhas were departing for their original dwelling places. Only a young woman remained, sitting in samadhi close to Shakyamuni Buddha's throne. Manjushri asked the Buddha, Why can that woman be near the Buddha's throne while I cannot? The Buddha said, Just awaken her and raise her up out of samadhi and ask her yourself. Manjushri walked around the woman three times, snapped his fingers once, took her up to the Brahman heaven and exerted all his supernatural powers, but he could not bring her out of samadhi. The world-honored one said, even a hundred or a thousand Manjushris would not be able to bring her out of Samadhi. Down below, past 1200 million lands, as innumerable as the sands of the Ganges, is the Bodhisattva Mo Myol. He will be able to arouse her from her Samadhi. Instantly, the Bodhisattva Mo Myol emerged out of the earth and made a bow to the world-honored one, who then gave his command. The Bodhisattva went before the woman and snapped his fingers once. At this, the woman came out of Samadhi. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Koan series. In the Koan series, we will read and discuss famous koans used by real Buddhist monks from such sources as the Blue Cliff Record, the Gateless Gate, the Treasury of the True Dharma Eye, and many others. As you will remember, over-intellectualizing koans is completely anathema to how koans are used and ought to be used in real Buddhist practice, so keep that disclaimer in mind. However, I'm here to give some extra context and meaning to some of these koans so that you might see them in a new light and gain some new or deeper meaning from them than you did before. I hope you enjoy. Today's koan is known in English as A Woman Comes Out of Samadhi, and it comes to us from the Koan Yamada translation of the Gateless Gate, known as the Wu Guan in Chinese, or the Mumonkan in Japanese. If you remember from before, this is a collection of 48 Chan or Zen koans compiled in the early 13th century by the Chinese Zen master Wu Men Huikai. This is one of the most important compilations of koans in all of Chan or Zen Buddhism, the other being the Blue Cliff Record, which was compiled in 1125 in Song Dynasty, China. A Woman Comes Out of Samadhi is case number 42 in The Gateless Gate, and I chose it because it is one of the rare cases in Buddhism where a woman is an important and enlightened character in the story at hand. The pattern of this scene that goes on in this koan is familiar to us from a couple of very important and popular Mahayana sutras. There is a scene, for example, in chapter 12 of the Lotus Sutra, where a young dragon girl attains Buddhahood in front of Sariputra's face, but only after transforming into a male bodhisattva. Additionally, in chapter 6 of the Vimalakirti Sutra, which we have not read together yet, a goddess who has been living with Vimalakirti appears, and she creates a shower of heavenly flower petals. These petals stick to the body of the non-Mahayana adepts, but slide off of the bodies of bodhisattvas and drop to the ground. Thus, they delineate who has understood the superior Mahayana teaching and who hasn't. If a flower petal sticks to you, you haven't got it yet. One of these petals sticks to Shariputra, and this makes him very upset. One, this is monastic impropriety, in the form of personal decoration. To wear personal decoration of any kind is to break the Vinaya monastic rules. Two, she has basically magically shown that he's not as advanced as those around him. Shariputra attempts to use his supernatural powers to shed this unwelcome decoration, but it doesn't work. A battle of wits and wisdom ensues between Shariputra and the goddess. Shariputra is sorely bested and humiliated by the goddess. She explains that he cannot shake off the flower petals because he hasn't reached higher realizations. Shariputra asks the goddess if she's so advanced, why does she still have the body of a woman? 
knowing that women can't attain Buddhahood in a woman's body, and knowing that the woman's body is viewed as inferior in Buddhism. In response, the goddess uses her own supernatural powers to switch bodies with Shariputra, who gets even more upset, finding himself in the body of a woman. These two scenes are transformative for Mahayana doctrine, which clearly deviates from older and more strict forms of Buddhism on the issue of gender. The scene in today's koan fits nicely next to these two scenes from the Lotus and Vimalakirti Sutras. A very advanced disciple of the Buddha, be it Manjushri or Shariputra, is bested and shocked and surprised by the spiritual advancement of a woman character. While this does not fully do away with the inherent misogyny in Buddhism, it is certainly a step in the right direction. Early on in Buddhism's history, women were not allowed to practice as nuns or as lay followers. Then when they were allowed to be nuns, it was regarded that they could not become bodhisattvas. Then they were allowed to be bodhisattvas, but it was understood that they could not become Buddhas unless they were reborn in a man's body. The idea was that a woman's body is impure, defiled, hindered, and thus could not attain any of the various achievements that I've listed. You had to be reborn as a man, and being reborn as a woman was a result of some bad past karma. However, as non-duality and emptiness thought become ever more popular and important and prevalent in Mahayana Buddhism, the strict gender rules that marked early Buddhism start to slacken and change. What is also fascinating about this koan is that the gender thing is not the only idea on display. For example, what on earth is samadhi and how do you get in or out of it? Samadhi, which we will soon be doing a full episode on, is an intense state of meditative concentration and consciousness. The idea of samadhi is inherited from Hinduism and other Indian religions, and so is written on extensively throughout Indian history. There is a ton of material out there about how to get in or out of it, what happens when you're in it, and what it means to be in it, if it's a permanent state or not, and more. It is one of the most important outcomes of meditation in the Buddhist tradition, and so is very frequently commented on in the sutras and in the commentarial literature. There are various religious and scholarly definitions of what samadhi actually is coming from Buddhist thinkers over time and scholars in the modern era. I'll provide some of those here. Dogen, the 13th century Zen thinker and the founder of Soto Zen Buddhism, writes, The Buddha says, When you monks unify your minds, the mind is in samadhi. Since the mind is in samadhi, you know the characteristics of the creation and destruction of the various phenomena in the world. When you gain samadhi, the mind is not scattered, just as those who protect themselves from floods guard the levee. Meditation teacher Richard Shankman writes, The term samadhi basically means undistractedness. It may be viewed as an exclusive focus on a single object, but also as a broader state of awareness in which the mind remains steady and unmoving, yet aware of a wide range of phenomena around the meditation object. Yogacara scholar Dan Lusthaus writes, Samadhi provides the methodology and context within which experience is to be examined. Samadhi, by training, focusing, collecting, cleansing, and calming the mind, facilitates things being finally known and seen just as they are. All of these different definitions give some sort of necessary context for this term. As you can see, it is a very specialized meditative state, and it takes a lot of practice and work to get in or out of it. Additionally, you should note that it is very closely related to the four jhanas, which we've talked about extensively. More of this will be covered in the upcoming full episode on Samadhi. Suffice to say, you can see that it is a very difficult state to get in or out of. It could take a lifetime or more of practice to perfect it. The next questions that come about are, why couldn't Manjushri get the woman out of it? Why could Momyo, who we have never heard of before, get her out of it? These questions will require some extra context to understand. To help interpret this case, I would like to pose a discussion of gender in Buddhism, of Samadhi, and of the absolute and phenomenal realities. I think that these 
will give us some more tools to understand what this koan wants us to do and think about. Starting with gender in Buddhism, I posed the two scenes from the Lotus and Vimalakirti Sutras earlier, and I think that those should give a great deal of context to the issue at hand in the koan, but we should look a little more closely. We'll start with doctrine and then move forward to a brief history of gender in practice in Buddhism. On the issue of gender doctrine in Buddhism, Bernard Farr summarizes it saying, like most clerical discourses, Buddhism is indeed relentlessly misogynist. But as far as misogynist discourses go, it is one of the most flexible and open to multiplicity and contradiction. I think this sums it up very nicely. In Buddhism, women are seen as polluted because they experience menstruation, sexual intercourse, and death and childbirth. Rebirth as a woman is seen in the Buddhist texts as the result of some bad karma from the past, and the body is thus inferior to that of a man. Yet, as I have mentioned, there is still some flexibility and mobility as implied by the doctrine of non-duality and emptiness and the scenes I mentioned earlier in the sutras. If the gender dichotomy of man and woman is a duality, then of course, because of non-duality, it makes sense that that duality should be transcended and should be abandoned. Additionally, if being a man or being a woman as characteristics of the body are empty because the body itself is empty and the characteristics of the body are empty, empty in the sense that they have no abiding, unchanging nature, then of course, being a man or being a woman would not be superior or inferior to either one. Furthermore, we should talk about this issue of pollution and purity. Pollution and purity discourse in Buddhism is not one of the discourses in the immediate foreground, and that's for a couple of reasons. The first and most obvious one is that it's a duality itself, and we don't like those in Buddhism. Another reason is that it's not the same as moral good and moral bad, even if it does have overlap with those. When I speak of the pollution and purity discourse that applies to women in Buddhism, I'm speaking of spiritual and karmic pollution and purity. As you can infer, this is both moral and also kind of not moral. In Buddhism, a woman exists in a polluted body, and that is due to past bad karma, but it does not directly imply or determine immoral behavior in the here and now. There is a moral aspect namely the actions of the person in the past, but that aspect is at best a past issue and not necessarily a present or future one. The pollution, then, goes beyond the woman's past karma. To understand what this pollution actually is, we might have to make a very bad, nasty analogy. The pollution that we're talking about is like an odor that prohibits women from being able to be near purity, lest they pollute the pure with their odor. This pollution is caused by menstruation, childbirth, and sex. Again, these are misogynistically seen as moral improprieties, like in the case of sex, but because these are men writing about things that they don't understand, they also see menstruation and childbirth as gross or disgusting and somehow impure. As you can see, we're dealing with a case where the misogyny came first and then the doctrine came after, and they tried to fit the misogyny around the Buddhism in some way that made sense. However, misogyny itself doesn't make any sense, and so there's no way to fit Buddhism around misogyny or fit misogyny around Buddhism. Regardless, the misogyny then determined a lot of these doctrines, such as women cannot go near the Buddha. This is why Manjushri is shocked in the koan whenever he sees a woman sitting near the Buddha. In the words of sociologist and religion scholar Emil Durkheim, women are seen in Buddhism as profane, and the Buddha is seen as sacred. These two must be separated, and they must relate with each other in a specific way. They have a role to play, each of them, and this leads us to the practical issue. Women have been prohibited in Buddhism from going to temples and sacred spaces, and they have been prohibited from practicing historically. However, as time went on, and non-duality and emptiness doctrine came to be more important, then 
even in the texts, you can see a development where nuns become allowed to practice, and they become allowed to be in the Buddha's audience, and they become allowed to visit sacred spaces. As Buddhism travels through China and Korea and Japan, a lot of the misogyny stays, but women are allowed to practice and renounce. Also, they've come to feature in certain sutras, like the two that I mentioned earlier. As this change has occurred over time, you can see that the misogyny is not all gone by any means, as the rules for nuns are extremely more strict and numerous than those for monks, for example, but some small amount of progress has been made from the very beginning where it was regarded that all women were prohibited and locked out from what's going on here. To round out this historical trajectory that I've been drawing, we can look at self-identifying lay Buddhist women in the present. In the modern era, self-identifying lay Buddhist women are sometimes known to just ignore the misogyny and engage in a more personally fulfilling, egalitarian, and livable religious practice that just has complete disregard for those texts which are simply misogynist. They argue that these were written by men in the past, and that times have changed, and that the Buddha doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. This is not a complete discussion of gender in Buddhism, either in history or in doctrine or in practice, but I think that I've laid out what is important to know for the purposes of this koan. This discussion has also all built up to a discussion of limitation and of freedom, which is an extremely important theme in this koan. The commentaries, both modern and pre-modern, which are provided in this copy of The Gateless Gate, speak about how Manjushri has his freedom and Momyo has his, and the woman practitioner has hers. We would conventionally say that the absence of freedom to do something is a limitation. For example, we would say Manjushri is limited in that he is unable to wake the woman from samadhi but that Momyo is limited in that he is not as advanced as Manjushri. That is not how the commentators treat the issue. Interestingly, they write that Manjushri has the freedom to not wake the woman from Samadhi, and that Momyo has the freedom to not be as advanced as Manjushri. This is fascinating for a number of reasons, because it takes the hierarchy of spiritual awakening that's established by the Ten Realms Doctrine, which regards Bodhisattva practice as being above that of the Shravaka or the Pracheka Buddha, but it also reframes and reimagines the hierarchy established by the 52 steps of the bodhisattva path. These 52 steps are steps that a practitioner must take in order to go from being a shravaka to a fully realized bodhisattva. Momyo, in this case, has only done the first one. He's only completed the first out of the 52 steps, and Manjushri, of course, has completed more. The discussion of the limitations and freedoms of the characters that goes on in the commentaries reframes those 52 steps in an interesting way. We might have previously thought of them as steps on a path with increasing amounts of freedom and decreasing amounts of limitation. This increase in the amount of freedom is merited by the increase in the spiritual advancement and the supernatural power of the practitioner. The same is true of the decrease in limitation. However, the reframing that goes on in this koan in particular is looking at it differently. It's looking at the 52 steps as 52 different states of being in which beings occupying each of the 52 stages have proportional amounts of limitation and proportional amounts of freedom. In fact, we could even say that the commentaries do away with the issue of limitation altogether, and they say that each of these stages just has different freedoms. One modern commentary uses the analogy of making a jet plane take off. Manjushri couldn't make a jet plane take off because he predates planes by 2400 years. However, that means that he has the freedom not to have to power up a plane, push the throttle, and pilot it into the air. However, Momyo is like the jet pilot here. He is free to not have the responsibilities of being one of the Buddha's most important disciples, and one of the Sangha's most important teachers, and he has the freedom 
to make a plane fly. For this reason, Manjushri should not look down on Momyo, and Momyo should not necessarily look up to Manjushri. They should be respectful of each other and mindful of each other's freedoms in each of their stages. Additionally, they ought to be mindful of the freedoms that the woman practitioner has in her stage. The woman's freedom and limitations are more difficult to understand and talk about, though. She has the freedom to reach samadhi, which is the most surprising freedom in the case and is completely blasted past, but then she also has the freedom not to be pulled out of samadhi by Manjushri and the freedom to be pulled out of it by Momyo. What does that mean? What is its significance? I think the answer is closely related to the next topic we will be discussing, which is samadhi. Samadhi is a historically very significant meditative attainment, as we've said already. One can only attain it through serious, lifelong practice. It is a state of being which is very difficult to enter into because it is consummate concentration without attachment or distraction of any kind. It is complete absorption in the object of meditation. It is total, pure, uninterrupted, and unpolluted mindfulness on something. This concentration is said to be able to be diamond-like in that it cannot be broken by anything. There are various arguments about the etymology of the word samadhi, but many of them refer to the gathering of mindfulness and the gathering of thoughts and the focusing of them or the attaching of them to something. Samadhi is an attainment of meditation, and meditation usually requires an object. Therefore, samadhi meditation is not meditation on samadhi, it is meditation on something else while in a state of samadhi. There are many various types of samadhi meditation all related to the objects of that meditation practice. In the case of the koan, it's not clear what the object of the woman's meditation was. So in summary, practice of samadhi meditation is perfection of meditation by means of overcoming the five hindrances and perfecting your meditative practice over time. That is all what it takes to get into samadhi, but what about getting out of it? Getting out of it is naturally something that a skilled meditator would be able to do themselves. They would just simply break their concentration or open up their thoughts. However, if the samadhi is diamond-like, it can't be broken by anything, at least anything external. So either her samadhi was incomplete, or it was her choice to let her samadhi be broken by momyo. This first interpretation is less fun, because it just means that she is able to be distracted, and that she has a lot of practice left to perfect her samadhi. However, the second interpretation is much more fun, because in that interpretation, it seems that she is enlightened and is allowing her concentration to be broken as a skillful means. That affords her a much more active role in this case, which I love, because there are not very many scenes in the Buddhist texts where women play such an active role. If this second interpretation is the case, then it begs the question, who is being taught by these skillful means? Furthermore, what are they being taught? The easy answer is that it is teaching us or teaching Manjushri about our third topic of discussion for today, absolute and phenomenal reality. We'll save that discussion for just a second. Let's come back to the idea of who is being taught. I think it's valid to say that Manjushri is learning something here, and that we are supposed to learn something too. However, what if we look at it as though Momyo is learning something? Momyo's name literally means unenlightened. He is indeed a bodhisattva, but he is not an accomplished one. He is said to have only completed the first of the 52 steps of the Bodhisattva path, and Manjushri is the completed Bodhisattva of Prajna, or wisdom. He has insight into the absolute nature of reality, while Momyo still exists in the realm of the phenomenal, differentiated nature of reality. Manjushri has something to learn here about women, and maybe even about Samadhi, but Momyo theoretically has a great deal more to learn. 
He has to learn about women and samadhi, but also about freedom and limitation, absolute and phenomenal reality, and possibly the nature of skillful means and of enlightenment. Perhaps in that regard, that makes Momyo a stand-in for the audience. I think there are various valid interpretations of who is being taught and what they're being taught, but I personally like the interpretation that Momyo is a student here. So he is learning about absolute and phenomenal reality. What are we talking about with that? Why do we align Manjushri with absolute reality and Momyo with phenomenal reality? This is related to the two truths doctrine, which we've discussed before. There is absolute reality and truth, which is empty and is the true and ultimate nature of all things. And then there is phenomenal truth or reality, which is aligned with our daily life experiences. Absolute reality is undifferentiated. All is of the same nature, and that nature is emptiness or suchness. Phenomenal reality is perceived as differentiated and various because one does not have the enlightened eye with which to see that it is actually all empty and undifferentiated. Manjushri is foremost in wisdom, or prajna, which is insight into the nature of all things. The nature of all things, as we've said, is inherently emptiness and suchness. As such, he's aligned with or even representative of absolute undifferentiated and empty reality. Momyo is still unenlightened, so he sees the world as differentiated and various. Thus, he is aligned with or representative of differentiated phenomenal reality. It is very important to know that phenomenal reality is not less than or inferior to absolute reality, because it can be seen as a pathway to understanding absolute reality. To think of them as dualistic and separated is unenlightened. This will become more clear when I provide Mumon's commentary. He writes, Old Shakya plays a country drama on stage, but people of shallow realization cannot appreciate it. Just tell me, Manjushri is the teacher of the seven Buddhas. Why can't he bring the woman out of her samadhi, while Momyo, who is a bodhisattva in the beginning stage, can. If you can grasp this completely, you will realize that surging delusive consciousness is nothing other than the greatest samadhi. As you can see, he has interpreted the case as a matter of non-duality between the effluence of delusive consciousness and the highest levels of meditative samadhi. This works really well. From a thematic standpoint, we've seen this pattern before. The koan oscillates and then leaves the final step of oscillation to the practitioner. It oscillates between Manjushri, who has perfected bodhisattvahood, and Momyo, who is unenlightened. It bounces between limitation and freedom. It bounces between men and women. Then it leaves the practitioner to experience the resulting non-duality. Finally, after these discussions, we can start to understand what's going on in this koan. It seems that Manjushri was learning a little something about women in Buddhism. First and foremost, he was learning that they can do samadhi, and that samadhi itself is diamond-like whether the person practicing it is a man or a woman. He is also learning that women can be enlightened and make use of skillful means, if, of course, we take the interpretation I posed earlier wherein she is enlightened and using skillful means to teach him. Also, he's learning about absolute and phenomenal reality. Momyo is learning about all of this too, but also about what absolute reality and samadhi actually are. He's learning about the bodhisattva path and about meditative attainments. He's also learning about women, like Manjushri is. Finally, we the readers are learning all of this too. We are learning that phenomenal reality Delusive consciousness and unenlightenment is simultaneously a buttress that supports and reinforces samadhi, but also a possible means of breaking it. We're also learning that there is no dualism, no duality, between delusive consciousness, phenomenal reality, and unenlightenment on the one side, and purity, enlightenment, and realization on the other. Through the discussion of all these aspects, in this koan, we're learning about the importance of the beginner's mind. Momyo is unencumbered by prajna, like Manjushri is, so he is able to approach the task of waking up the woman with a clean slate. 
he can see how to do this task more clearly because his mind is empty of conceptions, distractions, and notions. Manjushri is being taught about the beginner's mind here because he doesn't have it anymore. Imagine that the task of cooking a chicken is placed before a person. The practitioner of culinary arts is encumbered with wisdom, knowledge, notions, conceptions, and all kinds of stuff that could possibly slow them down. Many of us who are skilled in something are familiar with the idea of analysis paralysis. What am I going to cook it into? Should I boil it, do it in a pan, do it in the oven, etc.? The person who has analysis paralysis will ask all these questions, and the chicken will remain raw. The one unencumbered by all of that thought process will begin building a fire. The beginner's mind is one of the most important aspects in all of Zen Buddhism. This is aligned with the original mind, or the original face, from the previous koan, which we discussed extensively. This is our originally enlightened nature. It's the state in which every last one of our learned assumptions, notions, behavior and thought patterns, and knowledge has all been wiped clear from our minds, and we can access pure experience of suchness. If we unlearn everything, then we can start to see that the way we learned the world works and the nature that we thought reality has is actually all incorrect. Cultivating this mindset and approaching tasks with it is critical in the practice of Zen Buddhism. We'll talk much more about this beginner's mind in future episodes. I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion of Case 42, A Woman Comes Out of Samadhi. Thank you, and I'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.